Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Thank you for joining us in today's podcast. I am Shabnam Berry Khan. I'm a clinical psychologist and personal injury case manager. And today's discussion and dilemma will be around challenging behaviours, particularly in brain injury cases, but um, not necessarily so. We know that challenging behaviours can arise at any time after an injury, following a brain injury, following any catastrophic injury. And it's not unusual to see challenging behaviours in any stage immediately after an injury. I suppose if I'm thinking brain injury, that stage is often known as the post-traumatic amnesia stage. And um, it can often be a time where we see behaviours that are challenging, that are difficult to manage um, as a client adjusts to their their new sense of who they are and what's been going on, often very confusing for them. But it also can extend into early stages of recovery as well. In fact, uh, actually challenging behaviours can develop even many years after any injury, um, because they are quite complex. They're complex to understand and certainly complex to try and manage. Because the factors, I guess, around challenging behaviours may not just be linked to the individual themselves, but also to external factors outside of that individual's control. But I think for us in the personal injury world, I think the bottom line is is that anyone who is displaying challenging behaviours as a result of their significant injury, we very much so feel that our role is to try and understand and support that person so they can live a better, have a life with a better quality. And that ultimately is why we we do what we do. And if challenging behaviours are presenting, it's something that we would want to, I would imagine, try and support our client with. And to that end, today I am talking to Dr. Alice Nichols. Alice is a clinical psychologist and has been for about 10 years now. And she has a strong client base and experience in catastrophic injury. She has seen both adults and children with catastrophic injuries, with brain injuries and spinal cord injuries as well. So she's a really good person to to have on the show today. She's got some particular interest in working and understanding risky behaviours. Um, and thinking about behavioural interventions in a positive way that fosters learning and thinks about how to to sort of move away helpfully with everyone concerned, if you like, with the system, you know, very much so in mind. So therefore, Alice is no stranger to challenging behaviours in individuals who have experienced brain injury. So Alice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Great. No, thank you. Appreciate your time. So maybe the first point to start off with, so we kind of have a a baseline of what we're talking about here, is what are challenging behaviours from the viewpoint of a psychologist? And how would you sort of define, I guess, challenging behaviours for our audience? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's a phrase that gets banded about a lot. And I think Mm. um, sometimes it's possibly overused as well. I guess my favourite definition is really thinking that challenging behaviour is a behavior that puts the the client or the people around them at risk of harm or and I think this is quite a crucial point is or that potentially limits their ability to access the community so 
some things might not actually cause anyone immediate physical danger or psychological danger, but would potentially get them banned from shops um, or from the GP surgery. And so would lead to a restriction in their, their ability to, to live life to the full. Generally, it's about risk, but sometimes it's about very disruptive behaviour too that, um, that causes disruption and distress to people. And that, you know, that can lead to breakdowns in relationships in their placements. It can mean that they're difficult to get staff for. So, so yeah, generally thinking about risk, but not discounting those kind of more tricky behaviours that might cause um, difficulty in getting them their needs met. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, actually, because I think the distinction is important because a, a challenging behaviour doesn't have to be risky. But it could be um, quality of life impairing. Um, Absolutely. If I suppose possibly vice versa. Can, can you give us some examples perhaps of challenging behaviours within those two sorts of categories? I know you've already said sort of behaviours that could limit access to the community. I'm just, I'm just yeah. curious from your, your experience, what could that look like? You know, it might be just helpful to have that, you know, in mind yeah. for, our, for our listeners. I think, I think it's quite useful to think about... Um, how frequent a behaviour is sometimes so there are some behaviours where clearly just doing it once would be a really big deal so I guess like masturbating in public um, particularly near a school is a a big no-no but swearing in public I mean if it's occasional it's it's not the end of the world is it but actually if if you took someone whenever you took anyone into um, someone into a supermarket they um, repetitively swore very loudly that would be a problem. So, so yeah, um, frequency and intensity kind of have a bit of a, um, they kind of, there's a relationship between the two. So if it's low intensity but high frequency, it can still be really disruptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you got any examples of challenging behaviours that we might see perhaps with our brain injured clients? I know that's that's kind of not a very narrow question at all. So, so work, but work with me in terms of yeah. what we might sort of typically see in, um, so a lot of our clients are cared for at home, as you know, um, may or may not have access to the community, but they, you know, they are, they, they're, they're often in a, in a complex system. So they've got maybe family, um, you know, parents and siblings. Uh, I'm just thinking about a paediatric case in in my head at the moment. Mm. Um, but, of course, challenging behaviours are not only in paediatric cases. But I, I'm just yeah. thinking, you know, the care teams, the multidisciplinary teams, there's quite a lot going, you know, there's a lot going on for our clients. And um, mm. the kind of behaviours that we do see can vary hugely. Yeah, I guess um, something that I see a lot of, and I guess is is aggression towards either self or others. So it might be self harm, or it might be others. But when that that client has kind of reached a point of overwhelm or mm. um, or, or anger or distress, but maybe yeah, maybe people who haven't got particularly good emotional regulation skills, and that's quite common after a brain injury. And people struggle to manage their emotions for for multiple reasons, and some of them some of them physiological, some of them. Um, you know, as a result of the psychological trauma. But yeah, what we might see is people being quicker to anger and to become aggressive towards others or themselves or both. And I guess some of the intensity of, of, of that would be about who was around them. So if there were small children around them, that would be a lot more challenging than um, if they lived by themselves and had a 24-hour care, t- well, you know, really well-trained care team. So 
it is also about who's in the environment with that person. Mm. Yes, you mentioned training, and that may well be something that we touch on a bit later on. But yeah, I mean, that's really helpful. You know, that there are so many behaviours that can be tricky to manage that we see in our personal injury work. Mm. Um, and it can be massively disruptive and destructive um, in some cases. Yeah. I'm just thinking if you were to help us understand a little bit about um, an underpinning to where behaviours perhaps come from or how we mm. can think about those behaviours within a, a sort of framework. I'm just curious as to what you would say to us about that. Is there a yeah. framework indeed that we can think about when, we're, when, we have our, when we have clients with challenging behaviours? Yeah, so we know from a really basic behavioural perspective that mm. we, and I, I mean all of us, challenging or not, all behaviour is, is performed because it either gains us something pleasant or helps us to avoid something unpleasant. Mm. And maybe pleasant is probably not the right word. I mean, I probably mean desirable or undesirable. Because I think something that people miss out of this when it gets talked about is that often what people gain is an emotional expression or an outlet. And that doesn't, that doesn't really you know, easily marry up with um, a bigger positive experience, but it's a need that needs to be met. So going back to the example of someone who perhaps is being pushed really hard in rehab, is really struggling with their um, adjustment to their injury and has a lot of distress around them and actually has had enough of, of being pushed and ends up, you know, screaming and becoming very distressed and maybe hitting at people. What, they, what they're gaining is, a, is a, an outlet and an expression. It's not like they're getting a Mars bar, um, you know. So they are gaining something, but it, it's quite a complicated thing that they're gaining. And they're gaining it that way because there's no other way of gaining it. And actually, if we went back to that person and thought about how they were being pushed and how perhaps they'd, they'd done too much physio that day or um, they'd had too many appointments that week, mm. um, you could also argue that that behaviour is communicating that that client has done too much that week, that that client is not being heard, and that that client is really, really distressed. They're really struggling. And that's, you know, that's not being thought about when their week's being planned out. So, yeah, I guess we come back to it being about a communication of unmet need. So when people are behaving in a way that they're clearly not enjoying, what I like to think about is not really what are they gaining, but what are then what, what needs are being um, communicated here? In all my time, you know, working with people challenging behaviour, it always comes down to their needs not being met or they're not they're not being heard, and um, that's uh, that's particularly difficult when people have communication um, difficulties after a, mm. after an injury. Yeah, even when they don't, this is quite difficult stuff to communicate. So even if they don't necessarily have a, a, an impairment in their their ability to speak, it, it can be that it's just too difficult and too painful to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I was going to say that the communication may be, you know, very much so based on a an emotional motivation. Ultimately, mm. that there's something very sort of emotionally simple about what they're trying to say but they are communicating it in in this small behavioral way and so in a way 
it's it's not I think what I I hear you say is that it's not really about the behavioral focus it's perhaps peeling that away a little bit and mm. understanding what the emotional drive is behind that um, yeah I think it's so easy to get hung up on reward and punishment and I think mm. people tie themselves up in knots thinking about reinforcing or not reinforcing the client's behavior and you know, that comes from some old school psychology that isn't massively helpful, kind of being misunderstood, I think, yeah. in relation to challenging behaviour. Because what we've, what we've got here are people in distress with needs that aren't being met. And I yeah. think that's what we need to come back to. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the other thing that, that we often talk about when we think about behaviour management is consistency. Oh, for me, that is such an easy word to say, but such a difficult thing to think about when you know in line with what you've been saying about understanding the purpose of the behavior what need needs to be met and yeah um, you know what is the behavior trying to communicate to me consistency is about everyone jumping on board that same sort of mantra of understanding what the purpose is what the communication is for this individual so there's Mm. a real systemic element to it that involves other people and so the relationship immediately from understanding the behaviour isn't just something that it, that is understood or, or that is evident between you as a practitioner and your client who is exhibiting the behaviour. You have to broaden it out to the family, to the care team, because that consistency is so crucial. Yeah, absolutely. You're on your own amongst within this sea, if you like, of different opinions. And what you understand is going to be watered down almost. Well, probably not a very good analogy, but if that makes sense, that, that everyone has to be singing from the same song sheet in order for that underpinning that you've talked about to, to then be able to strategize from it. Everyone has to buy into the idea. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think, and I think it really, this is why it helps to work with everyone from the beginning is, is we need to be, we need to be, I guess we need to be sure that the understanding is correct in the first place. Um, and I think we only really come to that from multiple perspectives. And I think all of the guidelines around assessing challenging behavior talk about multiple perspectives, you know, because one, one care worker and one, or one parent will see, will see something different or have different ideas. And I think when we're assessing someone with challenging behaviour, we're looking to see, I guess we're gathering lots of different hypotheses about what's going on. But, you know, we're, and we need to do that by going to everybody in the system and asking them what they think is going on, what they're seeing, what they're not seeing, and, um, you know, their concerns about the person. And that does yeah. serve two functions, because actually one of them is um, gathering information about the behaviour, about the client and their needs. But it's also... Getting everybody on board, getting them to think, you know, think psychologically, think um, about the client and try and understand the behaviour rather than, I guess, just worrying about it or panicking about it. It's it's thinking, actually, there is something going on here and we can figure it out. And um, here's this person here with me who's going to help us figure it out. So, actually, it's a source of support for the, the system to have a psychologist come on board and say, you know, what's going on? You know, how are you? And how are you with that? What's going on? How are you? You know, let's figure it out together. And actually, mm. when you've brought someone in at that stage, when you then come back to them later, you know, after you've looked at some behaviour recordings and you've observed the client yourself, when you come back to them and say, look, I've done this, this and this, and I've taken 
what you've said on board and this is what I think, they're far more likely to get on board with you and to either agree to an understanding or perhaps revise an understanding with you. Because, you know, we don't always get it right as psychologists. A lot of this is um, hypothesis making and testing. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you you need everybody to be consistent. So you need to involve everybody because if people don't agree with what you're saying or doing, it's, it's not going to work. And actually, it could even be counterproductive. So, so yeah, yeah, definitely. We need everyone to be singing from the same hymn sheet or um, yeah. to be, even if they don't necessarily agree, agree to test out, you know, agree to like, let's try this and see. You know, when we have a hypothesis or um, a formulation, so like an understanding of the client's behaviour, I always write in my report that, you know, it's tentative. This is This is an understanding that might be helpful. This might be what's going on. And actually... We're not necessarily saying this is fact. We're saying let's run with this because it's the best guess we've got at the moment. And yeah. based on that, let's try out acting as if this was the case and see see if that makes a difference. And if it doesn't, then we'll reconsider. And actually, if it works, it still doesn't mean that we were right. It just means that it works. And that's that's all we're really that's aiming for at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, that, that's the closest you're going to get to the magic wand that psychologists are often thought to have. This, you know, wonderful sort of come in and within, you know, a few sessions, you've magicked the problem away. I wish that were true. Um, it's so seductive, isn't it? This idea that we're going to come in, we're going to know what the problem is and we're going to fix it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, yeah, I think it's very easy to get sucked into that. But the next best thing I, for me would be very much so having the, the sort of professional network in agreement that this isn't going to be a quick fix solution and that this mm. is going to need the time invested to get everyone on board because the, that is the key. As soon as you've got everyone on board, from what you're saying and certainly my own experience is that you can then we are the the sort of um, the scientific experiment, if you like. You've got the hypothesis. Yeah. We are the the different, you know, whether the extra bit of chemical here and the, you know the the you know a few extra drops of whatever there to make it make the understanding of that hypothesis or to test it, the testing of that hypothesis a bit, you know, that bit more scientific. We need a little bit of this, a little bit of that, um, yeah. but it, it does need that mindset I think from those involved um, be it the case managers solicitors whoever um, needs to be on board with it to to see that because we're yeah. you know as a psychologist you're not you're just not going to be able to to jump in there and fix it quickly and that mm. kind of leads me to my next question actually because obviously psychologists are not the necessarily the obvious thought that people have that we've got behavioural problems let's get a psychologist involved for some that may be the case but for others they may wish to kind of understand a little bit more themselves maybe help help a psychologist along if they do decide then to get a psychologist involved I'm thinking what do case managers and solicitors need to perhaps think about practically at the point of working out whether this is a problem that they can try and fix themselves or to try and understand themselves, or whether this is something then they need to seek additional specialist help from, say, a psychologist about. What what do they what would you advise in terms of practical steps, if you like, in understanding, you know, the purpose and the communication and thinking about the system around the client? 
Okay, so do you mean before they get a psychologist involved? Yeah, I guess, yeah. yeah. The kind of thinking, oh gosh, it's someone, or I have identified a challenging behaviour, right, first things first. What do I need, yeah. you know, what do I need to think about around this? I guess risk would always be my first concern. Who's at risk and how much risk? And is there like a risk management plan in place? And and sometimes that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look pretty. Sometimes it's like actually... When, when this person becomes aggressive, people are at risk of getting seriously hurt. And in the short term, it might mean telling staff that actually they need to be prepared to phone the police if things get out of hand. So, I mean, that's like the worst case scenario, but it, it might also mean that actually they need to leave the room or they need to make the room safer. If things are getting smashed, it might be that things that are getting smashed get removed. So before we start doing anything clever... We need to make things as safe as possible. And, you know, to be very honest about that, that might also mean talking to the safeguarding team if we think people are at serious risk. So mm. always start off with the risk, which I'm sure um, case managers will be doing anyway. Then check in with the staff team. Because I think yeah. the impact of working with challenging behaviour on staff teams just be so huge. Um, you know, it, it can be very distressing and stressful for, for care staff to be seeing. Or I've not even mentioned the families, have I? But yeah, it's for the people that are living with their families. Um, you know, checking in with them too, because they, you know, they are the they are the care team too, aren't they? And um, of course, they've got so much more emotional connection going on there. So check in with people. Check in with where they're at. Are they coping? You know, because potentially care staff could walk. Family relationships could be breaking down, and you know that definitely needs assessing really quickly. And I suppose the point that you'd made earlier about training would probably. Mm. Come here as well yeah so sometimes there might be training needs that have not been met or that there might be a need for additional training but sometimes it's just reassuring people that we don't know what the right thing to do is at the moment and that we need to figure that out and you know let's let's just start to unpick what's going on but this isn't something that anyone has a magic fix for and I, I think um you know for, for care staff that can be really reassuring to hear think they think oh this is my job and I should be doing it and I should be looking after this person and actually they're banging their head against the wall um you know you know I'm not there's you know there can be immense feelings of um, failure going on there for, for um people caring for others so so yeah so you know really kind of coming alongside the, the, the care team checking in checking that they're okay and that they're coping and giving them some reassurance giving them some additional training if they need it supporting them as best you can you mentioned um, recording data you, you, in, in passing earlier, and I'm wondering if there's anything that would be appropriate for a sort of a non-specialist to be thinking around. Because um, the sense I'm getting very much so is prevention is far more important than um, being in the midst of a challenging behaviour episode and firefighting your way through that, you know, kind of bringing it back down to a sort of prevention thing, which as a psychologist, I know that recording is part of the data collection, which then helps direct us towards, in theory, a an idea of, you know, what is a trigger, what is an antecedent, if you like. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering then, is, is there something data collection-wise that case managers and care teams can be thinking about? The data collection is so helpful, um, especially when we come to assess the client, but also much later on when we are trying different things out. Because we want, if we want to know whether anything we do differently is making a difference, Mm. then um, we're going to need to see whether it's having an impact on 
the frequency and the intensity of the behavior so so yeah we want as much detail as possible but if that's not possible if, if people are struggling to get it down then actually you know anything is better than nothing you know just to have a baseline of how often something's occurring is helpful in terms of assessment it's going to be even more helpful to have the what was going on earlier that day had there been any warning signs you know had anything unusual happened in the last 24 hours and then you know what happened in the run-up to the incident itself and then what exactly happened in the incident and how long did it last often doesn't get recorded so I know a lot of people have it incident forms for their organizations anyway and most of the time they're fine but make sure they're recording how um, how long um incident went on for and how it resolved and what happened afterwards so you know thinking about sort of the hours afterwards how was the person in that time and what happened yeah no that's that's really helpful actually because i think um just thinking back to our incident forms yeah, it's not often that you would have the duration of the actual episode on there and then what happened afterwards. It's very much so uh, a case of perhaps what happened before and what happened in the moment. But those yeah. details, I can see how helpful they would be to a specialist coming in. Um, yeah, so the more detail, the better. But sometimes, yeah. you know, if someone's like hitting someone every couple of minutes, mm-hmm. you know, and I have seen cases like that where, you know, people, they are just hitting the people that are around them. It might be that it's just not realistic to do that kind of level of breakdown. And, and actually just having keeping a tally can be helpful because it, it just gives us that information about how often it's occurring. Yeah. And yeah. Um, whether some days are better than others even. Because all of that is important when we come to assess. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose some of that can be subjective as well. Just how, did, you know, how was it for you in that, you yeah. know, as a care team member, as a family member to experience that, that can give you an extra sort of bit of clue for um in terms of that uh, the practical steps that you might take towards your care team as well so all of that data recording it's not just about the behavior itself I suppose like you say it's the impact it has on the care team and the family that needs to be taken into consideration I would like to probably ask you a last question if that's all right for now um, yeah, although sure. massively um interesting topic and I, I think there's so many angles that we could take with it Probably the hardest question of all, um, what would your top three tips be for those listening in, bearing in mind the majority of our listeners will be probably case managers and personal injury solicitors. What do you think your top three tips would be for them to, to kind of take home, having heard what we've said today? Okay, so um, I have to give you a little bit of thought. So I think my my top tip or my take-home message is that challenging behaviour is always communicating an unmet need that might not be on purpose or consciously but where there is challenging behavior there is an unmet need um and yeah what we need to figure out is what is being communicated and recording can be a helpful part of that Mm. my second top tip is that often when i come to assess people I, i run through lots of different questions but the two most useful questions seem to be if you wanted to guarantee the behaviour of concern would occur, what would you do? So I'm not saying anyone would ever do this, but if you wanted to make someone behave in the way that we're discussing, mm. what would you do? And if you wanted to do everything you could to prevent the behaviour occurring for a set period of time, again, what would you do? And those questions asked, you know, you could ask the whole care team those questions. 
just starting to ask those questions will give you some really good insight into what's triggering the behaviour and what's what's helping to decrease the likelihood of the behaviour. So that's a really sort of basic bit of assessment that can just start you to think, okay, well, let's do more of that and let's do less of that. And let's start to hypothesise about what's going on for the client. Makes sense. And I guess my, my, my final, but possibly the most important one, is checking with your staff team. You know, how are they coping and what support do they need? Because actually keeping them engaged, keeping them talking is going to help keep them on board and help them keep helping your clients. So, you know, always come back to what their sense is of what's going on and how they're managing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's super important because we all know that without a care team, well, even losing one care team member is just massively destabilizing mm-hmm. for the client, for the family, for the rest of the care team. And it makes our work so much harder. So, And recruitment isn't cheap. It's not easy. It's really hard to find the right person, particularly if challenging behaviors is a feature of how your client presents. So I know I, I really agree with that last point in particular. And I, I think you're right to prefix it with, you know, possibly the most important of all. Yeah, no, thank you so much. That was really helpful. I know it was a bit You're of a whirlwind <laughs> tour into challenger behaviours I've seen through the eyes of a psychologist who has masses of experience. So I really appreciate your time um, today um, talking about this. And yeah, I guess I would summarise it to say that I guess challenging behaviours are not always easy to uh, work with. They're not always easy to define, actually even and I think people do have different levels of say tolerance with them and you know what is considered challenging for one is not considered challenging um, to others but I think the the ideas that you've given today in terms of risk and limiting access to the community and thinking about frequency intensity are really good starting points as to what objectively perhaps is helpful or unhelpful for this client and what they can achieve and what they I guess what their goals are and fundamentally it is a multidisciplinary perspective it isn't a psychologist coming in and going all right this is it it has to have the buy-in of everyone ideally including the client but that's not always possible Mm. but certainly the family the care team the multidisciplinary team and of course case manager and um and to some degree as well of course our um personal injury solicitors who are either trying to understand what's going on for the client on a day-to-day basis, either for for the uh, for a case that's unsettled, or certainly understanding the funding position if the case is settled. So I hope this has been helpful to our listeners in terms of navigating a little bit through those challenging behaviours. But thank you once again, um, Alice, for your time, and I look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks to all for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye for now. Before you go, if you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 